episode 34 of the not so weekly rundown that's right baby metro fan tv back at it again after a 10-month hiatus and a lot has happened since last april um it's been a while ladies and gentlemen and uh we we find it strange, you know, like uh, that in the midst of uh, off the backs of probably one of the best seasons this club has had, we've had a sudden, we found ourselves in crisis mode and on the verge of the 2020 season right now, I'm sure a lot of us have had a lot more questions than answers off the back of this transfer window. So we and Fernando will be here to break everything down in a much long-awaited episode that has come 10 months in the making. How are you, Fernando? I'm actually doing pretty good. I'm excited for, uh, for the season. Um, weirdly enough, uh, it's, been, it's been a fucking wild couple of months, both uh, on the field and off the field, but um, I'm excited. I'm, I'm definitely excited. It's, it's the longest off-season ever. Uh, it's been, what, four months or something on godly shit like that, so... Yeah, I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. Can you believe that it's taken us longer to put this episode together than it has your wife given birth? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've had a child since the offseason, and she's three months old. Like, that's how long the offseason's been. <laughs> and that's the last amount of time since we last recorded an episode together as well. So I guess this is quite literally a second child on the way, you know. Uh, so I guess uh, we'll cut straight to it. Um as I mentioned at the top of the episode, a lot of questions in Red Bull world right now coming off, I think, what was probably one of the more disappointing seasons, I think, in recent memory. Of course, uh, when you're coming off like literally the best season that the league had ever seen at that point in 2018, expectations would have naturally run high, right? I mean, we only really had lost one player, as instrumental as that player was. Um, and the expectation was that like, if you were returning... 10 out of 11 starters from that caliber level team. You should be able to basically maintain a high level, a high standard performance, right? Because I think, as you can see, the blueprint was there to have tactic, the tactical blueprint was there. We had an easily replicable play style that was basically built into the DNA of this crop of players. And then when a ball was kicked and balls, many, many balls were kicked over the course of the 2019 season, it all seemed to fall to shit, right? The tactical blueprint that we had been so familiar with seeing um, just seemed to simply evaporate overnight, you know? And I think um, any discussion of an upcoming season would therefore have to begin centered on the man or maybe perhaps the men in the center of all of this who are kind of responsible for putting us in this predicament right now. And I'm talking about Tweedledee and Tweedledum, Chris Armist and Dennis Hamlet, right? Um, and I really do think going into 2020 that any expectations on the season are basically going to be are basically going to uh, are basically going to fall. I think on whether or not Chris Armist suddenly has a grasp of a, a semblance of an easily replicable or perhaps a coherent game plan, I should say, a coherent game plan, yeah, uh, week in, week out. Because I think one of the things that really, 
I found really questionable last year, right, was how there didn't seem to be a consistent lineup uh, week in, week out, uh, which, um, you know, I mean, I get it. Early on in the season, you may want to tinker and move guys around to see who'd be, uh, who, who wants it more and who wants to be fit into a regular starting 11. But, you know, I mean, alarm bells would be ringing, right? When even it's August and September, you don't have a consistent midfield pairing or a consistent defensive pairing even, right? Where you saw all kinds of nonsense um, being pulled. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, you could blame injuries and everything, but it really did seem after a while that it didn't seem to have, that there weren't any, there wasn't any coherence in a week-in, week-out game plan. But now going into this preseason, I think uh, we kind of see something, perhaps, a little um, silver lining on the horizon, right? With the 4 triple two that's been played in preseason, that's generally looked pretty good. Right in the two outings against the SKC and uh, Houston, I mean they've played yeah. some pretty decent soccer in those uh, in those uh, preseason friendlies. So I think uh, yeah. we'll, we'll we'll begin with this uh, formation change to four triple two. Yeah, I mean a couple of pretty big additions, right? I mean, first of all, I think Florian Below coming back from a season-ending injury once again and generally looking pretty fresh. You know, I think uh, you know I think with how this formation is looking preseason. You feel like there's a room for optimism with this as the game plan going forward? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, last year, shit, we could we could devote a, a four-hour episode into all the fucking bullshit from last year. Um, not sure if it's even worth it at this point, but what I will say is, my even putting my my the most optimistic view I can possibly put on to last year. Um, Let's say, okay, the roster wasn't exactly what Chris Armas wanted uh, to, to implement whatever tweaks he wanted to, uh, to do. Um, bottom line is the team was a tactical disaster last year. I don't, I don't care about players and any of that shit. Like, I'm sorry. They're, they're, the team just looked so goddamn lost pretty much at all times. The only time they did look like there was any type of um, – cohesiveness and there was any type of identity was one the brief moments in a, a few games he, we saw like elements of eds right the rsl game for one was like holy shit it's happening it's back and then you know that punch in the dick a week later when we start playing like shit again um so going into this season i guess at this point like any idea any any semblance of eds like it's it's whatever like it's gone EDS is is in the in the sense of what we were used to under Jesse Marsh. That EDS it doesn't exist anymore, which is fine. You know what? Like I, I'm, I've accepted it. Chris Armis is a manager for the foreseeable future. This is his team now. At the very least, I want to see something that resembles a coherent tactical plan, even if there are some glaring holes in a roster and. And we, they are finally trying again to make another big push to the four triple two, which I think actually this might be the year. That kind of lowers my expectations a little bit, but at least I can say, okay, there's something. And from what I've seen in just the two preseason games, I actually, I, I actually do have a little bit of optimism. The team definitely just, again, for, forget everything outside of 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 the the, the roster and blah blah blah. Just how they looked in terms of tactics and, and their, their, the movement and the shape, they actually looked kind of good, especially in um, – oh, God, who was not, a la- not the last game. The last one was against Kansas City. 
The one before that was, I think, was Columbus. I'd say for pretty much the entire first half, that was the most cohesive I think I've seen this team under Chris uh, under Chris Armas going back into last year, with the exception of the games where like we saw you know bits of uh, bits of EDS. Um, there was you could tell the players knew they had a role. You could tell everyone was kind of on the same page. You could tell they kind of knew what to expect. And those are not small things. When you play even a throttle down type of, of, of high press, a high press type of uh, type of play, or even if you're playing in a mid block with a lot of pressure uh, and, and still going for you know that, that quick transition, those are really, really important factors. So those, it was really refreshing to see that. And, Although again, there were definitely some some holes and some flaws I saw. I didn't like how easy it was to cut through the midfield. Um, just because, at least, I can say, using what's been a failed formation, pretty much forever, for using a new formation or really a, a tweak of the formation that they've tried before, seeing that and seeing them still being able to to, to have a visible set of coherent tactics and shape and all the other stuff I mentioned to me, that's actually a good thing. Cause that maybe if when, you know, things get tough or whatever, if they switch back to the four, two, three, four, two, three, one, there's a firmer level of, of um, familiarity there. Maybe the, the level of play they can have is even higher. I don't know, but it's super refreshing to see some type of growth from Chris Armis. Um, and it's, it's just good to see something that, that resembles um, a coherent team going into the season. So, you know, there's holes throughout the roster, unfortunately, um, but a good baseline for me. The most important thing is going to be the tactics. I don't care what roster you have. If you don't have a set of tactics and and, 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 uh, and ideas and, and instructions for the players to do and you just roll the ball out and say, guys, just, you know, go do stuff and things, you know, by, there's only so much you can do. So for me, the baseline is there. There's some level of, of improvement um, on the tactic side, and then from there we just kind of see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I think if, I think yeah, you kind of nailed it on the head there when you're talking about the potential holes in the roster, right? And I think uh, if I'm looking to one thing that could potentially haunt this team this season, you know, once again, it's a complete refusal to invest in a decent center midfielder that can plug in in this in the defensive midfielder role, like next to what Christian Castor is Jr. or Sean Davis, you know, and I think. When I when, 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 when I, I think you noted it, how porous the center of the park still looks. And if you look back to 2019, like you can definitely say that, you know, I think the center midfield pairings, like nothing really seemed to stick, right? And it's pretty clear to me that we have a glut of like eights on this roster, right? Sean Davis is an eight. Mark Shutkowski is an eight. Christian Caceres Jr., I'm going to say it. I was wrong to plug him as a Tyler Adams replacement. He's definitely more of an eight than a six, like having watched him play a lot more like last year. And, you know, I think if you look at the way that this team is supposed to be set up, you know, I mean, it's with how the press works, right, and how you are supposed to have those two in the center of the field covering just such an unbelievable amount of ground. You know, I think, like, Caceres Jr. doesn't have the motor that Tyler Adams does. Sean Davis certainly doesn't have the motor that Tyler Adams does. Rizza, oddly enough, could, but he's more of like an energy sub playing that advanced destroyer role that Tyler would kind of plug himself in, like, situationally, right? 
And he's not really going to be able to do the whole covering thing that Tyler Adams did, where he'd basically be able to just kind of press almost two guys like like by himself, you know. Um, <clears throat> is there's one thing that this team has been lacking for, I think, quite some time for, for all the last year. It's basically this guy who has that just simple ability to cover that amount of ground and be and apply that amount of pressure in the center of the pitch, you know? And it really has a big effect on the way that this team spaces itself out because of that. Because now you're leaving a lot more holes through the center of the field. You know, I think if that's one thing that I'm really going to knock this team down on in this offseason, it's definitely not going to, and it's, it's definitely not investing in a defensive midfielder to plug the gap next to one of the three center midfielders that we already have in the roster. And what's frustrating about that is it's not like it's not like they don't acknowledge that that is a position of need. This is now the second year in a row where they failed at at uh, at at successfully bringing in a target in that position. Last season was blackface Belgian guy, and (laughs) this year and this year was uh, what's his name from uh, from Silva, right? I think from yeah. 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 So it's like, I mean, shit. They were trying literally on deadline day. They they threw in one last hail mary offer. I think with an hour, with an hour of the of the uh, of the deadline. So it's not like, again, it's not like they don't recognize. It. It's not like they don't understand that this is an important position. So I, I just this probably ends up growing into a, a broader, I guess, discussion of the team's transfer policy. And, and no, not that they're cheap. It's just. Are they just too picky sometimes? Do you have to be picky? How much leeway do you have when targeting certain things? And is it how justifiable can like how much wiggle room can you give them? Where okay, let's say that is you, you know you can't be too picky. You have to be picky because of the the um, I guess because what these these roles uh, require if you know regarding the playing style and, and whatnot. Um, but like I mean. Shit, really? Two years in a row, two guys, and God knows how many other you know, uh, set of mids they they tried going after and 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 failed. So I don't understand how yet again for the second year in a row we're going into the season with basically the entire same center mid uh, a group of guys, and you've you again you failed multiple targets. Like it's it's I'm not sure what's worse if they no. I don't know what's worse if they were just not going after any improvements in those positions and they were just completely fucking oblivious or the fact that they've recognized that they need uh, uh, somebody to plug into that position and they seem to be completely okay with failing and just kind of shrugging their shoulders and say, okay, well, we'll just you know run back what we have. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, you know, and I think this kind of moves on to centering the discussion around Dennis Hamlet, right? Because I think um, an increasing amount of pressure being applied from the fan base on and a perceived inability to just get deals done, right? You know, I think uh, it's worrying to hear um, so varying sources across the league mention that Dennis Hamlet doesn't really have the respect of any of the uh, stakeholders, right, that are involved in player negotiations because he's got this reputation for being a bit of a cheapskate. Apparently, you know, like haggling over prices and things like that. And, you know, I mean, it doesn't really do much for me. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, um, 
you know, I think you we one thing to knock this club for being cheap, but we've seen in the past and seeing the amount of uh, you know the the valuations that were thrown out basically, right? This transfer window that there was at least some attempts, you know, to splash some kind of cash on positions of needs, just defensive midfielder. But then you hear things like, uh, you know, I mean, the, this kind of a chump, this kind of a chump deal for Leonardo, right? An initial bid of 1.5 million gets rejected on about two weeks before the window starts, right? Uh, they set their price, and instead of trying to meet them, you know, maybe halfway or something, like you raised a bid to a 3.5 or a 4 million or something, you raise it to 2 million pounds, a 500,000 pound increase from the initial bid on deadline day itself. You know, yeah. like, like, like you, it, it, this is where you really start to wonder. And I mean, like, you know, I mean, a lot of discussion has been centered on who does what in the Red Bull organization, right? Because it's just so fucking nebulous and impenetrable. <laughs> it's really, yeah. really hard to say who does what. But what is very apparent to me is that this isn't the first time we've had some kind of prolonged negotiation that ended up with a deal falling through, right? Under Dennis Hamlet's uh, tenure. It's ha- this is his, uh, what is it? I think his fourth transfer window now, right? 2018, uh, winter, 2018, summer, and the two in 2019. Okay, so now it's actually his fifth transfer window now, right? This isn't exactly... Uh, no, 17. He took over. Begin. We'll we'll say that the beginning. We'll say that the winter window from sixteen to seventeen was a wash, given all the craziness. So summer of twenty seventeen, and then the winter going into eighteen. Okay, yeah, you're right. Yeah, so yeah, I think this would be like his. I mean, it's his fifth or sixth, and ultimately, but I mean, like that's enough transfer windows now that you should basically know what to expect at this point, right? And I feel like you know, I think the writing on the wall is definitely, you know, the appointment of Kevin Thelwell coming in from Wolves. Because I think it's pretty clear to me that I don't know, like, I, I mean, I don't know who's in charge of negotiating these deals in the, Ripple, at the, in the New York organization ultimately. But I don't think there's any clear, um, clearer knock against the, cap- the, the competency of the people who are in charge of the sporting side operations more than the new role being created to bring in a guy to provide more oversight on these kind of things. You know, I think it's if you read the tea leaves a little bit, and, you know, again, it's a bit hard to read the tea leaves with this organization sometimes, but it's very clear to me that now there's, they've basically brought someone in with a lot of credentials here, right, to basically run the sporting side operation in New York to add that extra layer over Dennis Hamlet. It seems to me that you can interpret that move clearly as the organize as the brain trust in Austria potentially not having a great amount of confidence in how they've been doing business in New York for the last I don't know maybe couple last couple of years you know and I think um, this is why I think it's, there's good and bad in this because, you know, it, it could also basically mean that 2020 is another transition season and we'd fucking hate to see that, right? And uh, and the first uh, fruits of the Kevin Thelwell era would only really be reaped in 2021. But I guess, you know, the silver lining in it is is that you could definitely also make the claim that Austria hasn't slept on us, right? Austria has been paying attention to what's been going on and 
they're not happy with what they've seen. It's why they've decided to bring in a guy with, I think, quite a lot of very positive things when it comes to a vertical execution, right, of a tactical system from the top down uh, to basically come in and run this operation. You look at his CV, you know, extensive, uh, extensive um, experience um, building up coaching programs, right, uh, for coaching education programs in Wales, academy, academy work, you know, for Wolves, moving up to the big moving up to the senior level team and basically being trusted to uh, run an operation, uh, which I guess, you know, I think uh, how much agency he had over that, again, you know, being clouded by Wolves' links to the Jorge Mendez Rolo decks, right? But you can definitely say, you know, I mean, like, uh, even before that, you know, all kinds of really good work developing um, and understanding soccer from, like, a grassroots level all the way to a senior level and understanding... The level integrate the work that needs to go into it to integrate from the very bottom at the grassroots level all the way to the very top, you know, and that's why you know I like I think Thelwell's appointment could very well be probably the most pivotal move that we make at this offseason. Yeah, for sure. I mean, look, it's it, for me, it's it's simple, right? If if there if Dennis was doing his job and there was confidence in his ability to do his job and they were satisfied with what he was doing uh, for his job, they wouldn't have created this whole new position above him to make sure that everyone is doing their job. Uh, it would take a lot of convincing um, otherwise, honestly. Um, you could argue maybe there's a little bit too much, I don't know if redundancy is the right word, but maybe too many layers at that point. Um, is is Dennis just going to be like, you know, yes, sir, and and – you know, just handling maybe just internal MLS stuff or like, like you said, it's a bit nebulous. We, it's a brand new position. We have no idea what really this position is going to even entail because they're still just a traditional sporting director. So who knows? Um, what I will say, though, is that is without question for me, the single biggest news for this team since Jesse Marsh left by far because – there is a very cynical perspective to have, which, I mean, it's totally acceptable. I definitely understand, which is that, you know, everything that we saw from 2015 to 2018 was 100% Jesse March. And look, I mean, that there's that's a perfectly viable argument. And less cynical take is there were certain things provided to Rebel New York, right? Pushing a, a, a very specific root set of ethos from, you know, a baseline set of, of, of tactical identity, um, massive investment into the youth academy and making sure that they're, you know, integrated into the pipeline, making sure RB2 is plant, you know, firmly planted in that pipeline going up to the first team. Now, really, it seems like for the most part, it's the first team that's been broken since Jesse left. Now, if there's any truth to there being a true system, it's, it's easy to replace parts and have it kind of chugging along again. I think it's been pretty clear that since Jesse left, it's just been kind of a rudderless ship, right? The most important part of the whole system, the whole point of this whole system is even existing is for the first team. And you can have all the players that fit pieces and all that stuff. If the manager isn't doing what they should be doing to keep everything going, and there's just not a, a, a clear, if there's not something to tie all that together, you get what we got. 
towards the end of 2018 and basically all of last season. So my hope is someone of of Thel's um, uh, you know, resume and, and and what he's been able to do in his career. This is this is bringing someone to kind of right the ship. You know, maybe this is not everyone's going to be a Jesse Marsh. Maybe Chris Armis is just not. You know, he just doesn't. Maybe he doesn't want to deal with that kind of thing. He doesn't want to have that much of a deep high end control the way Jesse Marsh did. And hey, that's fine. You know, some some managers don't want to get involved in that. If I'm going to take the super optimistic point of view, cool, no problem. Just worry about game to game stuff, and let Dennis or let let everyone else kind of handle you know the high level stuff. But seeing someone of of, of his caliber kind of come over here, uh, lead the Premier League to come over here and and have that kind of you know high level position that is for me the by far the most hopeful thing because regardless of what happens here at least i can say there's finally local um uh what's the word looking for um, oversight yeah, there, yeah there's local yeah i guess you could yeah oversight there's accountability. uh accountability okay. there you go there's local Exactly, because you know, look for for all the the joking that we made last year of you know Ralph, you know, helicoptering in and, and and saving us. I mean, maybe maybe we thought he had more control over day to day stuff, and it's more we're going to give you guys the resources you need. Don't fuck this up. <laughs> and he did come at some point. Uh, I think it was during the fall, um, randomly. And from what some people have told me. That was, in fact, him kind of flying over here to take a look at things, and he wasn't happy. And that's when he kind of got the ball rolling with some changes here internally that we've seen. I mean, look, we've seen a whole new analytics department, a new video department, a whole new scouting network for us, not even just tapping into the the European side, but our own internal uh, uh, scouting network has been restructured. Um, we have a whole new head of sport, a whole new position for this club. These are not small things. This, to me, like you said, shows signs of life. It shows that there is investment, that they do care, they have been watching, and they have been paying attention. It might take a couple of months to see this stuff go through. At this point, you know, yeah, technically our transfer window you know, is still open, but I mean, the rest, most of the world's transfer window is already closed. So I don't expect anything uh, significant in this window. Maybe we see something in the summer. Maybe we don't have to wait until 2021 because, unfortunately, this is MLS, and we've seen it time and time again. Teams kind of just, you know, float around for the first half of the season. Winter window comes, and all of a sudden they're, you know, fucking MLS Cup champs. The Shield at this point, it's not in the picture. It's depressing as it is. We're we're not Shield contenders. We won't be by any stretch. So at this point, our focus is going to be it's the MLS Cup. I mean, we're we're kind of at this point just a typical MLS team. Right, just do stuff and things until the summer. Cross your fingers, maybe make a move or two, and you know, go for the cup. And so it's not like we're completely, you know. Again, even if this isn't the best of years, we're not out of the picture really until the end of the year. So hopefully, hopefully, with there being some kind of local accountability, if Chris Armis is not doing his job, if he's getting the players that he asked finally, and he's still just not getting it done. He's gone. If Dennis, whatever he's supposed to do, if he's not doing it right, he's gone. To me, those that's the most important thing. There's actual local accountability. We don't have to now sit around and wonder who's watching, like who's paying attention. Who do someone do something? At least we know now that there is someone who can do something if if things kind of just you know go south. 
Yeah, you know, I think, uh, uh, of course, all of this could be made moot by 2021, you know, foot and mouth and everything, if it turns out that a whole big nothing burger happens throughout the season, which I wouldn't really rule out anymore, because the entirety of last season has me shook. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Like a big foot and mouth moment for me, unfortunately, uh, from uh, when we had our coronation episode uh, after we won the Shield in 2018. yeah, I mean, last season, just a giant humbling experience, unfortunately. So uh, I guess in the sporting front, it's definitely a bit more wait and see for me. Uh, I'm kind of with you on the point where the Shield is probably not like, in even in my wildest dreams, probably not in contention. You know, we are not in the upper echelon of uh, teams in MLS uh, with the uh, way that the talent that we have in the roster right now uh, being coached by the man that is supposed to get the best out of him right now. Because my default standpoint is is that you could have the most fabulous roster pound for pound in MLS, but it doesn't matter if Chris Armour is going to get the best out of him. And there is nothing yep. right now that indicates to me that Chris Armis has any idea how to get the best out of anything that he has at his disposal, especially if you just see the way that, uh, you know, I think, they completely botched a man managing last year, right? With, Kamar, with the now dearly departed Kamar Lawrence and Michael Amia Murillo. Part of the job is handling personalities like that, you guys. Like, yep. it wasn't a problem under Jesse Marsh for some reason. But now all of a sudden, uh, you know, I, I think uh, suddenly you don't really have that authoritative hand in the locker room. And suddenly you have all these people coming out of the woodwork saying, oh, it's been the player's fault the whole time. And he's called a fucking manager for a reason. If he can't exactly. manage personalities like this, then he's just pretty fucking bad at his job, as far as I'm concerned. But uh, I'd also yeah. But look, Jesse Jesse had a great uh, a great ability to weaponize people's personalities, right? If if you were just a super humble person, he found a way to use it on the field to to make you a better player. If let's say you're supposedly someone um, who's maybe a little more um, I don't even know what, what even trying to use without it sounding fucked up. But, you know, if you're just, you know, a little more problematic, if you just, you know, you have a little more fire under you, I guess you would say. Um, he found ways to weaponize it. It's just weird that all of a sudden Chris Armour takes over and now Gaku is an asshole, Amir's an asshole, Kamara's a douchebag. Like, those things don't make sense. All, all these players suddenly becoming problems to me don't make any sense. At the very best, at the absolute very best, yeah, maybe there was something there. But like you said, Jesse was able to manage it as part of their job. They're, they're not coaches. This isn't American football. This isn't hockey. They're managers. That's why they have that title in this sport. You manage everything about these players. And Chris Armas very obviously was incapable of doing that. And I don't like – no matter what happens this year, i got to be honest, I'm not a fan of this whole, you know, yes, sir kind of thing. Like I'm all for like good locker rooms and all that stuff, but like you sh- – a prerequisite to be a good player shouldn't be yes sir yes sir i want to see some kind of fire from some of these players yeah um i guess to i i actually wanted to guide the discussion back uh, actually to the formation momentarily because i think uh as uh, we mentioned i think uh when you talk about potential holes in the roster like i don't even look at the attack as being problematic right for us uh, in particular because if you look at how, like, look at the some of the numbers that we had last year. I mean, we were, we were a pretty good scoring side, 
right? Mm-hmm. It's just that we, we're also just really bad defensively all of a sudden, right? And then uh, to kind of tie it back to the earlier conversation about suddenly, you know, you had all kinds of uh, stories about players wanting out. Like, how do you suddenly have, you know, like a player like Aaron Long, by all means, like a very professional, like, you know, just kind of mellowed out guy, wanting to force a transfer overseas all of a sudden. You know, like it just implies to me a whole level of just a complete lack of authority in the locker room. But uh, yeah, to kind of build upon my earlier point, you know, I think uh, what's going to cost us this season isn't so much um, our attack. Because I do have the feeling that we have the potential for some really fun, dynamic attacking interplay. You know, some of the players that we have at our disposal, you know, I think Kaku next to Josh Sims, next to Brian White. Um, Florian Below coming back as well and looking really, really yes. good his first couple of games. Yes. I think that's huge on the down low. Like we have a pretty, we we have a pretty decent front front four. I would say the the big question mark for me is the one that I co- I covered at the top of the episode. Who, which is the two center midfielders, uh, and who Chris Armas decides to go to to be the regular pairing there. And I really don't, and I really think that you can't really have this team function the way you want to function if you have a couple of, basically, if you basically have a couple of eights linking center midfielders as opposed to, you know, guys who can go out and be physical, cover ground, you know, um, that's kind of sort of be the big thing. And I think if you look at that in particular, it's a pretty big reason why our defensive record was so poor last year, right? Because the inability for center midfielders to track ground and cover space, you know, it leaves the center back so much more exposed with their high line, right? And how far the fullbacks have to push up, uh, have to push up the field to provide the width in this formation. Uh, you know, I think it's basically leaving the four guys in the center of the field on really big on islands to themselves, right? And you kind of saw that quite a fair bit last year. You know, I think a lot of our goals were scored by just guys just going straight up through the middle and catching guys like really spaced out from one another, right? There's no way for, there's no substitute for the fact that if the four guys in the center of the field are way too spaced out, the opposition's going to have a field day because, you know, they can just bypass the press of a long ball over the top. Shit happens, ball bounces around a bit. And then suddenly you may find yourself in like a three on two situation because uh, the ball bounces in a certain way that um, you have three streaking attackers going up against the two center backs to the back who are completely isolated, right? Because of how far are far up the pitch the fullbacks have already pushed up. You know, and I think we have to solve that this year. Uh, the solution to me would have been to bring in another midfielder, but we are going to have to play with what we have, you know? And I think if we are really going back to the well of unfortunately running Sean Davis Mark, and Mark Shikovsky into the ground next to each other. Like, that's not really going to fill me with too much confidence about our chances this year of, uh, you know, I think adequately maintaining results and attaining results. Uh, but to kind of give a bit more, um, I guess, uh, yeah, I think to kind of color this in a little bit more, uh, I'm going to draw from our mailbag, actually, about... Uh, half about 30 minutes into this episode. So I'm going to draw on a question from Alexander Zanopoulos to guide this part of the episode. And uh, thank you very much for this uh, very comprehensive question. Uh, this is regarding the formation change that we we're talking about, right? So if we are going to run a 4 triple 2 what should the fullback roles be? 
and how will they properly support the two demons? And remember when U.S. men's national team fans called this the empty bucket? Was Bob Bradley ahead of his time technically with that U.S. men's national team? And are there any lessons from that team? And how do you properly set up traps and triggers for the press and the Portugal two? Can Armas calibrate and time this? Will Davis and CCEJ be able to candle those duties and recognizing when to press? And which is the forward to lead the line? White, the Dane, Matthias Jurgensen, or Barlow? And it kind of... It kind of... When you talk about a formation switch to 4 2 right? I think one of the biggest wrinkles that distinguishes it from the 4 one is that now when you run a pressing scheme, Having two center forwards allows you to put one striker on each of the opposition center backs, right? So immediately you're applying more immediate pressure on teams that want to try and build out the back because whereas before uh, you'd have, uh, you know, I think one guy kind of leading the spear, like one guy, the center forward is a spear, haranguing almost immediately. Now you do, now you have, now you have, uh, now it's a two-on-two, right? You don't have a free man at the back who will basically be acting as a safety valve. And as a result of that, I think you can also start to see a more symmetrical press forming, right? I would imagine that the trap in this case would be when the ball gets shifted out to the sidelines. Because I think as a lot of teams like to do, they like to use the uh, sideline as an additional man to basically um, add additional pressure to someone playing out there on the left. And I think if you see the 4 2 as a whole, the idea is that the front six... The, just the three blocks of two that are playing up front are supposed to be playing together as close as possible to create a compact enough, to compact the field enough, to force the opposition into playing long balls in over the top. Uh, where, yeah, into, play, into playing long balls over the top, which can be won back by your center backs, you know? So um, I would think that that would be what the traps and the triggers are when it comes to forwards leading the line. I mean, I think you obviously have to play Brian White because he was probably the best center forward on the team last year. Um, with regards to who goes next to him, I think if you look at Brian White as the uh, Polson right, in this formation, you have two potential choices for Werner and, you know, I think in Jorgensen and Barlow, but I think a sneak candidate could actually be Josh Sims. Mm-hmm. And I would actually think that it would make a lot of sense for Josh Sims to actually be the striker next to Brian White. You know, because he has that ability to kind of play out wide as a winger or a slightly more wide player, which, uh, you know, I mean, if you win the ball back in wide positions, he'll know what to do with it. He's good with the ball as his feet in one on one situations. And he's fast enough that he can make all these runs in behind. You know, I think uh, you'll be seeing a lot of, uh, I think, especially when you consider how good Brian White is, you know, at the hold-up play and his ability to link attackers in the attacking third. Like, having someone like Sims who can kind of streak off the shoulders of uh, his fellow attackers, right, and run in behind um, is actually quite a valuable asset. So I would actually like to see Josh Sims lead the line next to a Brian White. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, for all the talk about this team needing, you know, some big fancy DP and all that shit on the attack, scoring was never an issue, like you said, at all. In fact, for about 85% or so of the season, uh, this team was in the top three 
pretty consistently in goal score. I think maybe once or twice we we dip down to like fourth or fifth, but for the most part, the overwhelming majority of the season, scoring goals was not a problem. It was bleeding fucking goals. It was like that second half of 2016 of blowing leads, but just for an entire fucking season. Um, and, and that was a problem. It was, and, and that can be the tactics surrounded by the team. You could argue a whole bunch of stuff, but the bottom line is scoring goals wasn't an issue. It was the fact that they gave up, what, 51 goals, I think, last season, yeah. which for a typical team is probably not horrific. For us, that's absolutely pathetic, especially considering, you know, it was the same back line and, and pretty much the same team minus one player. Uh, so that, that was pretty unacceptable. So the issue going into the season, I still don't think scoring goals is going to be a problem. If anything, I think the team might actually be positioned to be even better in scoring goals, um, especially if the 4 triple 2 ends up working. Um, but the most important thing is going to be, uh, you know, mitigating these defensive lapses and, and, and those issues. Uh, as far as the formation itself, I mean, the team's not going to be playing a super high line from what it seems, just based on a preseason. Um, they definitely played a bit high, a couple, uh, you know, certain parts of, of the game, but they definitely seem to be a little bit not not deep. Not they weren't playing a low block for the most part, more of a high to mid block at times. Um, but I'll say this kind of falls into what I mentioned before that they looked more comfortable in in, in doing that. They they seem to be more understanding of what that entails and had just better ideas of kind of how to handle certain things. Um, one interesting I, I, uh, thing I, I, I saw quite a few times during the game was they had a, a, a front line of like three, four guys pretty much lined up across the opposing team's entire back line. It was that I can't recall the last time I saw that. Um, so it, there's definitely some new, maybe even complex type of pressing triggers. It looks like they were really trying to force the long ball, which is, kind of counter to, I mean, their argument for a long part for, uh, for, for last year was, oh, you know, easy way to bypass or press was forcing long balls, which I always thought was kind of a nonsense argument because you sometimes actually want them to do long balls so you can win the ball back in the midfield and draw them closer to the midfield and then, you know, kind of just catch them on a the counter. It just seemed like maybe that's kind of what they were trying to do. But, yeah, there was definitely some – there's some positional and tactical fluidity – with that four triple two, from what I've seen, a lot of times it's actually more like just a straight four four two, not even a four triple two. Um, there's times where it, it's almost a four three three. There's a lot of fluidity there, so it's some, it's kind of hard to even say, um, like with a like definite straight up. This is how it's going to be, just because the whole. If you look at Salzburg, a uh, Leipzig who plays, you know, the four triple two, for example, a lot of times they're kind of mixed around and 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 yeah, moving around a lot. But the most important thing is staying compact and and having that quick outlet. Whatever the the press triggers are, if they're playing a mid block, a high block, or whatever, the most important thing is being compact, successfully winning the press, winning the second ball, whatever, and just moving quick, going as quickly as possible towards goal. And they seem to be shifting more towards that. So that's always a positive. Yeah, um, yeah. And I'm 100% behind you with Sims. I actually would love to see Sims. Sims, White up top with Gaku and and um, and Velo yeah. behind them. And Davis and uh, and uh, and Castro's 
behind them. That's a six right there. That if played, comp, you know, and it played the way they should be playing, the way you think they would, you know, how it should work. That actually sets up to be a very, very exciting, exciting team. So I, I'm hoping we see that at some point. I don't think we will. I do think. Yes, I'm saying it again this year. Royer, look, respect to Royer. He was our best goal scorer last year, but. The team was shit. Was just last year was just pure shit house soccer for this team, yeah. and the majority and the majority of his goals were shit house goals. If we're gonna, if we're looking at this in the lens of like proper tactics, you know, just real ideas of of, of how to see this team tactically. Um, I, for me, Roy is benched again, and and you you have a, you have he's just not in the front four. Yeah, like, you know- our best front. You know, you, you know, in a four triple two, like it really becomes apparent, like how much of a fucking Clint Dempsey ass player, like Daniel Royer, really is, right? Like, just kind of fucks around for eighty five minutes, and then all of a sudden, the ball's in the back of the net twice. You know, I think uh, when you talk about when you talk about positional fluidity, you know, and talking about wanting to kind of keep the team as compact as possible, I mean, like, I'm sorry to say, you know, I mean, Royer's kind of a guy who I think is becoming. A better fit, I think, late in the game when space is opening up, and you're not really hunting as a pack like a lot more uh, keenly. You know, I think, you know, like he doesn't really do much on the ball. Uh, his holdup play isn't the greatest. Like most of the time, it's him. You're effectively playing with ten men on the field, right? With Daniel Royer, uh, kind of just kind of sitting around poaching, finding space to kind of move into, and hopefully take take a shot at. And when you look at it in that lens, I really do think that there are better options next to Brian White that we could go with. They'll probably offer a lot more, um, you know, I think for at least 75 minutes to Daniel Royer. And I think he'd be pretty well suited to like a super sub role in that sense, you know? Yeah. Um, to kind of go to kind of, role. Yeah. It's a kind of, you know, I think to address some other parts of the question, uh, I'm unfortunately not going to be able to touch the Bob Bradley thing because I was not really paying any attention to American soccer during that era. But uh, I wanted to zone in on... Um, I'll zone in on Davis and CCJ first. I think Casares Jr. Uh, so, I mean, I think uh, if you look at the numbers again, you know, like some things pop out that looked really impressive on paper. You know, you could talk about how Davis and CCJ were like the leaders and recoveries and interceptions in the league last year. But, you know, I think like you have to fit those numbers in context of the system, right? Because of how many times the game plan is, is to force long balls in over the top of the field and to hopefully cause a lot of chaos in the center of the pitch that one of our two center midfielders would be able to kind of swoop in and pick up the ball. By design, the two center midfielders are going to be making a lot of interceptions and are going to be making a lot of recoveries, right? Because that's what they're supposed to be doing in context of the system. They're supposed to be sweeping up and picking up those loose balls. Where the where this, uh, you know, I think falls apart is the fact that where are they being? Are they engaging or winning as many of the midfield battles that they should be winning? If that makes sense, right? Like we already talked about the inability of uh, some of the midfielders on the team to cover the ground that's needed for them to actively harass the other team's players in the center of the pitch, right? You saw Tyler Adams and the amount of uh, battles that he got himself in in an average amount of game. I mean, it was off the fucking charts. You looked at his heat map; it was unreal. 
You know, he was basically everywhere. You know, you don't really have a midfielder on that team who does that right now, which while, you know, I think while they're churning out, the, uh, well, they're still churning out like a relatively high level of interceptions and um, of interceptions and I think uh, recoveries, like you really do question if it's at the rate that's needed to truly be a dominant center midfielder in context of this system, while also, you know, I think snuffing out danger at a high enough level throughout the game because you could very well be making all these recoveries and interceptions at a much smaller you know heat signature on the pitch which is kind of problematic right because it implies that there's still a lot of space elsewhere in the pitch that um our the opposition attackers can move into but they can kind of win things uncontested and you kind of see that i i feel like you kind of did see that a little bit last year so when it comes to the question of Davis and CCJ, I mean, like, it's not a, really a knock against either of them because I think they're being made to play roles that they're not really suited for. Because, again, they're both linking eights, you know? You need someone next to them who can be that pest, who can harass and cover the sheer amount of ground that's needed to um, be a dominant defensive midfielder in the system. You know? Well, and while they're very capable players in their own right, putting the two, it's a bit like, it's a bit like pizza and Coke, right? Like separately, they're great things, but you put the two of them together, you pour a Coca-Cola and a pizza, it's not going to taste too great, you know? That's what, that's what it kind of fit, it is for me, you know? It's a bit like a square, it's square pegs and round holes. Our, our, our center midfielders are basically square pegs and round holes right about now. They do too much of the same things well to be that they're unable to cover for each other's deficiencies. And I think that's something that you can only really fix by bringing in another player. I think my biggest concern for CCJ is from seeing more of him finally, um, it seems that it's not that he can't cover ground. He just can't cover ground at a high enough rate. Like, I don't know if I'm even explaining it right, but... He can cover a lot of ground in short spurts, right? Adams can cover the entire, the entire you know square footage of the field for an entire for the entire game for full ninety minutes and won't get tired. CJJ is different. He kind of just pops up in places sometimes that where you're like, whoa, where how the fuck did he get there? And a lot of times it's just because he reads the game so well. He does not have, he's not covering ground because of his pure athleticism. So that limits how much total ground he can cover as opposed to being able to cover a lot of ground in certain moments, if that makes sense. Um, and that's a problem because then he's next to someone like Davis, who is really just not that athletic and just in no way can he cover that much ground. So I think that's kind of a problem where, you know, a team that's designed to play compact, it's very easy to put, you know, kind of pick them apart. And if you don't have that, that, that athleticism to, to cover ground um, for long periods of a game, Every time you get picked apart, every time you get picked apart, it just adds more and more chances for you, you know, to kind of get exposed. And we did see a little bit of that during the preseason. I, I do not like how uh, how frequently uh, they kind of just got cut right down the middle uh, during preseason. So, I mean, I think I think generally speaking, the tactics and a formation does play. It's better for that pairing, but that pairing is still just not good enough even for those tactics. We still need someone who who can just just fucking just murder people 
and and cover ground and do all those things that we need. Um, but I, I, I don't know. I, I, I it's. I don't think it's going to be as bad as last season, but it's still just simply not going to be good enough. Yeah, yeah. I mean, here's the thing about being able to position yourself right. You know, reading the game is such an important part of uh, being able to cover space and everything. Yeah, I agree. But when you when, when so much of this system is based on randomness, right? Controlled chaos. The way the bounces yeah. kind of bounce off the aerial battles and everything. It's one thing to be able to position yourself in a way that, um, you know, that will allow you to at least have a chance of getting to the ball first. But it's all for naught, like, say, if the ball bounces another way and you still can't really, and you, and you don't really have the recovery speed that's needed to be able to contest for every single ball that bounces a certain way in the center of the pitch. And, you know, I think, like, Christian Caceres Jr., you know, like, his ability to read the game more often than not, puts him in the right position where he at least he has a chance to to at least you know contest the ball. But again, like as you mentioned, you know, like the athletic the athleticism Taylor Adams had basically allowed him to almost always be the first to the ball, no matter which way it bounced, right off those aerial battles, off the way that the ball would kind of ping around in midfield. Well, old, old. Uh, it's just you know I think that's sort of the thing that we kind of need in the center of the pitch. You know, I think. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't really have anything more to say than that. Uh, yeah, I mean, with, with with Adams, you know, he he wasn't he could he he couldn't read the game as well as uh, CCJ, but it was he just had the athleticism to correct it. He had correctable athleticism. You know, CCJ is not the same. He has to read the game at a high level in order to cover that ground. But you know, he's still very young, and you don't always read it the right way. Or sometimes you think you you did read it the right way in that moment. But like I said, it's kind of chaotic, and it's designed to be chaotic. And sometimes, you know, you may have read it right in that exact moment, but with a split second, that all goes to shit. And he just doesn't have that pure athleticism to kind of self-correct and correct whatever he, you know, whatever just happened. And that's usually when you end up seeing him, uh, seeing him get exposed. And everyone around him is kind of depending on him to cover more space than anyone else. And that means that the guys around him are maybe cheating a little bit too much, and then now you have this gaping hole that they're just going right through, and you know you're conceding. So it's 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 a tough spot. It'll be interesting to see how how or if they can you know they can uh, patch this hole with just you know what they have right now. Yeah. Uh, okay. To uh, trying to wrap off uh, this wrap this up, uh, we'll talk about the fullbacks now. I think right. Uh, and that was the very first point that he wanted us to address in this question. What should the fullback roles be, and how will they properly support the two demons? So I think you kind of hinted at this a little bit, right? I think earlier on in our discussion, when you were talking about how the back line seems to have had their instruction shifted a little bit, right? Like not really so much playing balls to the wall high line as much, but also kind of being, kind of being a bit more of like a sort of a hybrid between a high and mid block, right? Sitting back just a little bit more, um, and if um, you're particularly talking about the roles that the fullbacks are going to be playing. I mean, uh, this is probably the biggest wild card in the roster this year, right? We lost basically two of the best fullbacks this club has ever seen in the same window to the same club. And if there's one thing I will never forgive Chris Armas for, it's basically alienating Kamal Lawrence and Michael Amir Maria. Like, um, and, you know, I mean, because of that, like, you're not going to be able to play the same way that we've been using our fullbacks, I think, in the past seasons, right? Because 
on the right side, Amir was just so silky smooth going forward and attack, you know, like his ability to just kind of glide through defenses and just go stun on people one-on-one, uh, posting up on the right, right side of the field. You know, I think that like, when you saw him in full glide, like it was, it was beautiful. I mean, I'm, I'm going to sound histrionic here, but it was beautiful, right? Poetry. And then you had Kamar Lawrence on the other side, who is probably, I think, probably the best two-way fullback that MLS has ever seen. And I don't even think that, and I don't know if I'm really being too biased if I say that, because he's just, he really just was that good. You know, like you saw it in the in the uh, vaunted playoff series against Atlanta in 2018. And I want everybody who has bad memories of that series to cover their ears right now. But <laughs> that's sort of always been the thing that's um, sort of the boogeyman in our closet, right? Like what happens when Komar goes down? And you see, oh, and you've seen it enough times now with how much the system was kind of reliant on his ability to just cover the amount of ground that he could cover on the left wing, like almost entirely all game, right? Losing that is huge, and that's why I think um, you know I think if you look at the guys who are supposed to be stepping up into those holes, right? A lot of question marks here, you know. I mean, I I I I, I I find it hard pressed to say that any of the guys in the roster right now will be able to replicate what Amir and Kamar were capable of doing. You know, I think uh, you're basically giving the left back berth to a kid fresh out of college, Patrick Segrist, right? On the right side, it's Kyle Duncan or Manny Egbo. Egbo, I haven't really seen too much of, so I think he's practically an un- unknown commodity at this point, despite his pedigree and uh, his, uh, you know, I think uh, the potential that he may have. Kyle Duncan, we all know, he's not Amir. I mean, I'm going to be quite frank when I say that. He doesn't have Amir's attacking capabilities in the slightest, but he is a very good defensive right back. You know, I think, like, I would kind of classify him as, you know, I think more of a Aaron Juan Bissaka type, right? compared to uh, Diogo Delo, which is uh, what Amir kind of is. Um, so you kind of already know that you're probably not going to be able to be generating as much offense from your fullbacks as you were when we were playing, uh, you know, balls to the wall high press in 2018. We already know that, right? And on the left side in particular, I mean, like, with a whole bunch of unknown commodities, right? Yeah, I, I think... Once you go down from uh, once you go down from Seagrass, it's probably going to be the next in line will either be John Tolkien or Reese Buckmaster, and you know that's doesn't really fill me with a lot of confidence. Tolkien nope. is going to be a great player one day, but he's not. But I don't think he's going to be ready to handle MLS minutes this year. I could always be wrong. If Tolkien turns out to be an MLS ready left back at the age of eighteen, like holy fuck. Like, I would love to be wrong, right? Yeah. It goes without saying. But realistically speaking, like, you're probably going to see John Tolkien start the year at Red Bull 2 because uh, we still don't know, like, whether he's better off at left back or or at center or, or in the center of the pitch. Like, that's why he's going to be sent to Red Bull 2 to figure out, right? Figure out his best role going forward. And then you, which basically leaves us with the left back depth of Patrick Segrist and Reese Buckmaster. And. I don't know, folks. <laughs> I really don't know. 
I mean, look, there's there's been a lot of very positive buzz from Seagrass, uh, not just from the team, but even outside the team, just around MLS circles. And even just from what I saw, I think he's actually going to be pretty solid. Uh, he might end up being, I think maybe outside of White, probably the biggest surprise draft pick. But even with White, I mean, it's not like he got drafted and went straight to the first team and got like real first team minutes either. So Seagrass would be the first player who would go straight from being a draft player to a starting role with the first team consistently and potentially the first draft pick straight to the first team to be a meaningful player. That being said, you're going from the best left back, arguably in the history of MLS, to a college draft pick. So regardless of how well he does this year, short of some just like shocking shit it is going to be a dip on that net side i don't i don't think anyone would even want to argue that with a straight face on the right side you know it's weird um i think because this team is not playing as aggressively as they did before um the tactics from what i've seen they are again better than they were last year uh it's it's still very much throttled down from what it was in the past. And it's, I think the idea is to perhaps balance things a little bit more. And if that's going to really end up being the case, maybe Duncan fits better with this type of new system that Chris is trying to roll out. I vomiting in my mouth saying this shit. Um, <laughs> but but if, if the idea is to maybe offset some of that, um, that ground covering with the fullbacks and, and not have to rely just on your center mids. Maybe that works. Um, if the idea is to not uh, have your center backs, uh, it's not your center backs, your fullbacks, you know, just going guns blazing, you know, all the way up playing super far up. Maybe that suits Duncan better because again, he is better defensively and he's not bad um, offensively. He's not like bad on the attack. He's just not as good as Amir. Um, so he's definitely a more balanced player, and maybe in this new setup that somehow ends up working better. Um, Seagrass, look, man, he, again, he may end up being like, a, like an awesome player, and I wish him nothing but the best. I'm rooting for him, hard fucking core, but there's nothing that he'll be able to do that's going to be able to replicate what Kamar Lawrence did, regardless of the tactical changes or, or any of that. That being said, he does seem to be very athletic. He does seem like he can cover a lot of ground. So, again, flipping the other side, if, if, if the idea is for him to to help assist in covering some ground and, again, just maybe just, you know, balancing things out. Look, if it works, awesome, great. I mean, we all want this team to fucking be good. So, at, at this point, I have no choice but to embrace whatever shit Chris Armis is trying to do. I like some of what I've seen so far. Let's just see if it works. Um at this point, there is no such thing as a Kamar Lawrence role. There's no Amir role. Those roles are gone. There's no Adams role. All those roles are gone. This is a whole different – this is a different team, uh, a different identity. Weirdly enough, this is still the quickest playing, most aggressively pressing team in the league, which just goes to show you how absolutely fucking insane things were in 2018 under Jesse. Under Jesse. So I do have hope that there is still some level of excitement and there is still some – traces of of what you know we enjoyed stylistically so there are still going to be certain characteristics that the players are going to need in whatever new system chris Armitage is trying to roll out but the the 
roles that we've known for years now. Again, the taxi role, the Adams role, uh, uh, the, the Amir role, the should even the Dax role, all those roles, they're different now. So we have to maybe tweak our expectations and what we should really expect from these players because what they might need to do to be successful is very possible just to be fundamentally different than what needed to be successful before. Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm definitely going to co-sign on that one uh, for the most part. And, you know, I think um, my, my, my thoughts is, is that knowing that these two guys are fundamentally different players from Kamar Lawrence and Amir Murillo, right? I can definitely see this back four being a bit more of a flat back four, right? Kind of maybe not allowing uh, the fullbacks to venture forward as much. Uh, which also means that I think uh, that the implication that that has for the front six is that you're going to be seeing a lot more fluid interplay, right? To depend to to allow, I think, um, it's particularly the second row of uh, two players to fan out wide or move into the center, depending on where space opens up, right? So, which is why I think uh, that, which is why I think, yeah, I think a lot of the width will be provided that yeah at this season from exactly that you know it's not going to be provided by the fullbacks anymore maybe it will be maybe it won't but i do think a lot of our width is going to be caused by interplay uh to open up i think as we have it penciled in kaku and florian below you know in the second row of uh players behind the strikers um yeah i mean i think yeah, i do anticipate that this is probably going to be a bit more of a stay-at-home uh back four than we've been accustomed to seeing and maybe like you said maybe that doesn't leave aaron long and tim parker so exposed at the back anymore yeah maybe it doesn't yeah. maybe it doesn't really leave sean davison and island huffing and puffing about 65 minutes into the game yeah so i think that's probably going to be that kind of wraps up this question hopefully uh, this has answered uh, everything uh that we could answer uh, so I think before we move into the rest of our mailbag, let's just go around the rest of the uh, additions to the roster this year, right? I think we already covered Josh Sims and Manny Egbo to see what they could potentially cover. Um, we have a goalkeeper battle this year, uh, which yeah, but... I think I was kind of uh, pretty in favor of. You know, I think um, I think uh, you know I think I, I absolutely do think cutting Luis Robles was the right move. And if uh, that offends you, you can send hate mail to seeingredny at gmail.com uh, where I will respond to you there. Because, um, I mean, look, I mean, I think uh, Grobel is a great servant to the club. I think, uh, you know, I mean, you can't deny the fact that, you know, I mean, he really did care for the club and its fans like quite a fair bit. But, you know, I think uh, it's, it's the right time to cut bait. Right. I mean, you have a goalkeeper who's like, what, 36 years old this year with one bum knee playing on like 30 percent of a knee ligament in his right knee. Right. How dare you disrespect Luis Robles? <laughs> dude, dude, just chill the fuck out, man. I mean, like, <laughs> it's only game why you have to be mad. But yeah, um. Look, I mean, look, I mean, I think you could definitely see the writing on the wall in that end. I mean, like, uh, I, I, I think, uh, you know, if there was a time to move on from Luis Robles, it would probably happen now. And, you know, I think uh, they made a move that I've kind of wanted them to do for quite a while now. 
because uh, I've always been of the opinion that when we move on from Luis Robles, we were going to have to try and bring in a keeper with some decent pedigree in from the outside. And that's what we did, you know, with David Jensen. You know, I mean, I think as far as goalkeepers go, I mean, fits the bill quite well. You know, I think uh, you look at his, um, came from Twente or Utrecht, right? Was it Utrecht in the middle? Yeah. It was Utrecht, right? Yeah. I mean, seemed to be a fan favorite with the fans there. I think they definitely valued his contributions at the very least. And, you know, you look at him, you know, I think a big six foot four guy who gets down pretty quickly. Um, you know, we, we talk about athleticism a lot on this podcast in this episode because I guess, you know, at the end of the day, we still are an American soccer podcast. So we're fucking enamored with athleticism and shit like that. But <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I do like the pedigree that they decided to bring in. You know, I think the in terms of profile, it's definitely a goalkeeper that we sh- the type of goalkeeper we should be looking to bring in. 27 years old, about to enter his prime years, has a pretty good solid frame and good shot-stopping ability. And, you know, I think uh, the most important thing for a goalkeeper in our system particularly is going to be able to be seeing how he plays off his line, right? Because of how traditionally um, how traditionally uh, we play of a high line, which requires goal- which potentially requires our goalkeepers to be put in a lot of one-on-one situations. And I think it's going to be interesting to see how he does in those situations because I certainly think he's a lot more athletic than Ryan Mira, which means that his ceiling is potentially higher in that regard. And he has the size to kind of, uh, you know, dominate in one-on-one situations, I would say, right? I mean, six foot four guy, uh, big imposing figure. Luis was only like, what, 5'10", right? And I think one of his, yeah. uh, there were two re- pretty bad aspects of his game. One would be his distribution, which doesn't really matter in a Red Bull system so much, right? Since I think uh, the most the most important thing for a goalkeeper in a Red Bull system is to just kind of be able to place long, accurate kicks into the center of the press. But his one of, Luis's one-on-ones weren't fantastic, folks. Like, I'm going to be honest here with you. You know I mean? Like, he does have some pretty... He does have a pretty decent shot-stopping ability, but, but by any means, was he dominant in a one-on-one situation? Not really. If you have a goalkeeper that can, you know, at least provide a slightly more of a resistance uh, in those situations, it could very well be the difference between letting in, you know, 51 goals like we did last season and letting in maybe, what, 45, 46? And that may not sound like a big difference in paper, but I mean, five goals in total can result in maybe, maybe, you know, Five or six additional points at the very least, I would say. And that's being in a rather conservative estimate, potentially, depending on how well Thompson takes. But basically what I'm trying to say is, is that, you know, I think I'm going to have fun, hopefully, watching him this year. Because I do think that this is the type of goalkeeper we should have been looking to sign. And, you know, for all the talk about, you know, Ryan Mira deserving a time to shine in the spotlight, I mean, there are a few couple knocks against him, right? I mean, A, he can't stay healthy. Pretty, always seems to pick up knocks here and there. And B, like, I've just never really been convinced, right, that just because you have the most, one of the best backup goalkeepers in MLS doesn't necessarily translate over to being one of the best starting goalkeepers in MLS, and I know that this is going to be another one of those takes that potentially draws a bit of flack. So again, um, 
Yeah. So when it kind of boils down to that, like I really don't see Ryan Mira as anything more than like a stopgap for one or two years. And you were going to have, which means that you were inevitably going to have to make a signing like this, right? Someone who's a bit more of a long-term option who can hopefully provide more consistency between the sticks for another four or five years. You know, I think Jensen's profile definitely fits that. I'm going to have to watch him play a little bit in order to see how to, to, to get a sense more than, of how he plays more than what he shows on his highlight reel. Because for some odd reason, goalkeeping highlight reels on YouTube just love to show the flashiest saves, which means Jack <laughs> yeah. shit when it comes to, uh, you know, determining how good a goalkeeper is. If the flashiest saves were the best indicator of how good a goalkeeper was going to be, Evan Loro would be the starting goalkeeper right now. <laughs> yeah. Right? So, yeah, you know, I mean, I'm definitely going to enjoy trying to see what he can bring to the table uh, for the opening few games. And, you know, I mean, hopefully he lifts up the billing. You know, I think it definitely is the goalkeeper we should be making, should be looking to sign. Yeah. The, the, unfortunately, I feel like Ryan kind of fell into a trap of, um, look, he just fell behind, you know, Robles. I mean, Luis had an incredible streak. That streak wasn't going to, wasn't going to end until, it ended the way it did. He got hurt. Um, I still think there should have been some some deep questions internally about whether Luis should have regained that starting spot or not. I mean, the guy's been playing with an eighty percent torn knee for uh, for a season and a half. I, I, I the fact that he couldn't take that spot by just being a better player is concerning, or worse, the team just kind of buckled and and just you know fell on their knees and just. You know, let Luis kind of dictate and uh, dictate and demand that 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 spot, which is not good either. Um, I was kind of okay with Ryan taking a spot over until I really start you know taking a step back and and thinking about how much actual first team experience he's had over the years. And I don't remember the exact number, but it was something like I think he's only played three or f- maybe five MLS games since twenty since he went down. We're talking years now. I mean, he's got no real first-team experience outside of, like, you know, a couple U.S. Open Cup games, but that's pretty much it. Um, Every chance he's had, on top of that, every chance he's had, he's gotten hurt. He got hurt in 2018, too, and they got hurt again, you know, uh, this preseason. So, yeah, I don't don't think – if he was getting more consistent minutes, if there was a little bit more rotation, then I'd be more willing to say, yeah, you know what, okay, let's give the guy a shot. Um, but he's really barely played at all at a high level since Luis took over. And I'm sorry, I don't care how long he's been with the team. At the end of the day, your job, you're obligated to build, you know, the, the best roster you can and put out the best team you can. And there's a certain point where emotions and all that shit kind of has to get thrown out the window. So I'm very happy to see that they brought in someone, um, you know, Jensen does seem like a pretty solid pickup, and yeah, we'll just have to see how that how that works out. Uh, moving on to some other minor additions in the roster. I mean, we had the two two gratuitous Red Bull two signings this year, which I think were quite well deserved. You know, I think Christopher Lima going to be fitting into the uh, Vincent Bezicourt role this year. You know, just sort of like a depth midfielder for the first team. You know, I think there's kind of nothing more to that than that. But the interesting name, of course, is going to be Red Bull 2 standout, Jared Strout, right? I think um, a lot of buzz, I think, 
um, my take on it is, is that, you know, I think this could very well be, you know, I think you, you always hear this term thrown around a lot, right? The next Florian below, right, to come out from the depths of Red Bull 2 uh, to produce a really valuable first team starter, you know. But I think out of anyone who's been promoted to the first team from Red Bull 2, he certainly fits that bill pretty closely, right? I mean, like, uh, his, his development path was a pretty similar to, to Velo's, you know, like a experience playing out wide in John Molinick's system and in the center, scoring and assisting at a pretty good clip. You know, like, like you know, I think, like, uh, valuable players, you know, fit, you, you can find value in players that fit this kind of tactical mold, right? Because they come pretty cheaply. They fit a very, they fit a pretty good pre-existing system. And, you know, I think they may pleasantly surprise you if a couple goals here and there. You know, I think, uh, you know, Jared Stroud definitely has uh, dark horse potential written all over him, right? With his understanding of how to play in a Red Bull system and his track record at Red Bull 2, where he just seemed to get better year after year, right? To the point where, what, I think he's one of the leading goal scorers in Red Bull 2 history, which, I mean, again, isn't really saying much considering how quickly, how big turnover is down there. But, you know, I think the first step to proving that you could be a great first-team contributor is being able to deliver at Ripple 2, and he certainly did that. You know, I think it's a more than a deserved uh, promotion for Jared Stroud. Uh, I don't, I haven't really had the time to really see a lot, see a lot of the preseason stuff because of the games come on at really fucking weird hours here. But you know, I think if he can transfer over what he showed at Ripple 2, you know, his ability to move into space, link up well find the channels of his runs, right, to make the break into the box. I think, you know, he has potential to be a dark horse for breakout player of the year. But that's assuming that that transfers over from Ripple, too. Yeah. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I mean, that's it, pretty that's pretty, uh, pretty much where I sit, <laughs> uh, where I stand. I mean, you know, look, at the very least, it's a – they're they're gonna they're more likely gonna produce better than you know someone like Vincent Bessacourt. You know, no offense to him, but you know he didn't he wasn't exactly the, the the biggest player for us off the bench. And you know, just from what I've seen, I feel like you know, either one of these guys would be a better option off off the bench to him. So yeah, wait and see what happens with them. But I feel good about them. Yeah. All right. So I think uh, I think that kind of does about it, right? I think we've already given our season predictions. We're not going to be shield contenders. We're going to be just another MLS team for most of the season, unfortunately. And that basically means that we're just going to be bumming around, I think, at the lower playoff spots and hope we shitpost our way to the cup. So, <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I think – I do think we're a playoff team. I would be surprised if we're not. Um, I A little surprised at least. I do think we're going to be better than last year. Um, I think we're going to be a 50-plus point t- – t- uh, a 50-point – 50 point plus team. If I had to guess, I think our, our ceiling is like third place. Um, well, maybe, maybe we thought maybe the worst case is like, we, we kind of snatched that seventh spot again, but um, I don't know. I, I, I think we're going to finish the season between maybe like fourth and fifth place. Yeah. Um, I'm actually going to go lower than that. I really do think we're just going to be hanging around the periphery at the playoff picture. Fifth, sixth, seventh seed may not even make it. I don't know. Uh, it really, uh, it really feels like a, the 2015 season all over again. Only yeah. you know, this time that you didn't have the ace in the hole, 
like Jesse Marsh, right? Implementing this new system that took the league by storm. Because you kind of know that this manager is not Jesse Marsh. <laughs> and he's quite a uh, bit of the imagination. So it's kind of yeah. hard for me to give him, really give him the benefit of the doubt right now. Uh, I don't think we missed any, any, any additional signings, right? I think that was it. Yeah, I mean, other than the fact that, uh, yeah. like, I think, obviously, the big, the big wild card is always going to be injury luck, and if it decimates the back line, right? We're one injury away, basically, from having Sean Nealis be the only center back available to back up the two starters. And again, you know, like, this is another thing that I feel the club has just kind of neglected to address at this point, is just bringing on, like, a halfway decent fourth CB where you're not really relying on kind of wild cards like Sean Nealis to develop into something like that, right? I think, I don't know. But then again, it's always really hard to fit, to find people that kind of fit that role for the salary that they'd be asking for. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, the top three at least look really good, but a lot of it rides on our defenders staying healthy. And, you know, I mean, I don't really like I don't really like that at all. I think we're a bit too, we're a bit porous at the back and we're one injury away from being more porous at the back. So if injury luck transpires this year, I could definitely see us, if injury luck doesn't do us any favors this year, I could definitely see us slipping down the table even more. So yeah. Yeah, yeah that's true. That's kind of where I'm at. Um, anyway, let's uh, move on to the questions now. Um, so thanks again. Once again, I think, uh, we got 10 questions this uh, week. One question for every month that we did not record an episode. So thanks again for your patience and your continued loving support. Uh, we'll begin with the serious ones, I guess, filtering through it. Um, we'll start with a question from James Burl. Burley. Burl. I mean, I, what, I, I hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. And if I'm not, uh, just bear with me on this one. I'm so sorry. Uh, who deserves more criticism, Armas, the Grand Prix, or Hamlet, and why? Um... <laughs> Where do you want me to begin with this one? I feel like this could, like, again, you know, like we could record like a five hour episode on like who deserves the most blame. Um, I think if it comes to it, you could really blame, I think, I think Armas deserves a lot of the criticism considering the fact that, you know, I think we had pieces from a very good team that had a structure that they had a structure that they fit into that was well-established and well-known. And with the same pieces, he drove away two of them, right? Two of the best players on the team. Uh, our U.S. men's national team starter center back wants away to the Premier League, and the rest of them have just been thrown into a cement mixer of absolute shit. You know, with the way that they've had inconsistent tactical setups and lineups all of last season. Uh, I think, on like, like when I look at it that way, you know, I mean, I, I'm sorry. Like, it still comes down to Chris Armas for me. Like, I, I don't see any way that you could have taken what you had coming off of 2018 and just turning it into an absolute, into what we've seen now. 
but of course, you're going to have to give Dennis Hamlet quite a fair bit of the blame because of his inability to close out deals and negotiate. And of course, Mark de Grand Prix has somehow also managed to ruin the Red Bull Arena experience even faster than the team on the, the on-field product. So, <laughs> yeah, well done. I mean, truthfully. Uh, if you're really going to be replacing the statement announcer with Mike LaBelle, then I may just never come back, to be completely honest with you. I mean, Jesus Christ, man. Like, <laughs> absolute yeah, I hope that's I tell you. Yeah, I, hope, I hope that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna follow I, I follow that completely. It, it's it's Armis, and at the end of the day, he was the one who made the decision to change things up, change the tactics. And look, he's a manager. He has he has every right to do that. As much as I hate to agree, you know, to to say that he is the manager, and you know, it, he can do that if that's what he wants. But if you make that decision, you have to live with the consequences of that decision. And if 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 you're trying to change things to a point where you know it's just out outside the scope of what you can handle, well, you know, hopefully decisions are made. Or, hey, like I said before, maybe this year he proves, you know, he proves his worth and he proves that there's some, you know, awesome growth and he, he you know, he's, the team does that much better. But, um, yeah, at the end of the day, he's a manager. He made a decision to, to make the changes he wanted and, you know, it, it created a domino effect because now Dennis has to find the players that Chris wants and the type of players that Chris wants and, you know, he's out there, from what I've heard, making a fool out of himself and making a fool out of the organization. So, you know, it all starts with him. Uh, that seeks into the next question coming from uh, Christopher Murphy, uh, asking, with eight out of 12 games starting out on the road, should those early games be graded on a curve due to being on the road? And what record after 12 would be enough to change minds, Ari, Armas, and co.? You know, yes, it's true that you do that the scheduling gods didn't really give us much of a favor. You know, I think uh, having a very road-heavy schedule to start. But, you know, like, again, in the grand scheme of things in MLS, like, the early road games don't really matter so much, right? Like, with the way that this league is, is structured, if you're not a shield contender, it's not so much how you start, but how you finish, you know? But I do think that the team's performance in the opening 12 games of the season... Definitely going to be a nice barometer for the rest of the year. You know, like they could surprise us again in 2015, like they did in 2015. If this uh, new tactical formation turns out to be the thing that just makes the whole thing click. You know, I don't think it's very likely, but I think the possibility is at least there, as unlikely as it is. But so on my standpoint is Armas can change my mind. You know, I, 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 if, if, if the team looks fucking fantastic, like they did in most of 2018, uh, start the first 12 games of the season, you know, just getting out there and absolutely destroying dudes, like just playing them off the pitch, then okay. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll be glad to say it. Chris, I was wrong about Chris Armas, right? But do I see the likelihood of that happening? Not really. And to be honest, I think like all my benefit of the doubt just kind of got thrown out the window last season, right? As it just kind of went on. Like I was already grading him on a curve to start the year because, you know, I mean, like, First full year as a head coach, mostly running everything, trying to navigate, you know, a CCL and juggling everything else. But once we were eliminated from all those competitions, right, and uh, we were mostly centering solely on MLS competition, nothing improved. So I can't grade it on the curve because of that, right? Because all my benefit of the doubt's already uh, out the window. Well, so 
basically what I'm going to say is that I don't, like if the record is like something unbelievable, like say we got 10 wins out of 12, right? Maybe that'd be enough. And not just like squeaky ass, like shit posty, one nil whims where the goal like comes off of like where we, where we win one nil because the ball comes off of Tom Barlow's dick or something. Like, no, that's not acceptable as far as I'm concerned. If we <laughs> yeah. murdered teams the same way we did in 2018 through the first 12 games of the season, okay, fine. I'm back on board. But if it's not, then, you know, it's hard for me to really say that, you know, uh, my mind is changing, Chris Armis. Yes, I mean, for me, it's pretty simple. I think Chris demonstrated in uh, in 2018 when he took over that it goes beyond just a record. I mean, look, he technically had a better record than Jesse Marsh. I don't think anyone with with the sane head who isn't just completely out of their fucking mind would say with a straight face that the team played better in the second half under Chris than they did under Jesse. Because that's just complete fucking nonsense. So for me, it's not even about the record. The team can start the first 12 games in a season not well, um, most because of the road games. But if they look like a good team, if I see something tangible, if I see that like, wow, this is actually a good team, they're kind of just working on on a couple of things, whatever, I'm not going to be sold completely, but I'm willing to give some leeway. If they're just getting run off the pitch, if they just look like shit again, they're getting rocked, then no, my position will not change. So for me, it's maybe not so much the record as much as it's the performance. Because again, 2018 when he took over, I think just proved that sometimes you have to look beyond the record. Because yeah, he he 13 wins and whatever his record was, it was awesome. But the team looked like shit more often than not. The team squeaked by more often than not with one nil wins and that just wasn't it was good enough technically yes but that was exposed in 2019 so first eight games or eight of the 12 in a row doesn't look good but i want to see something i want to see good quality performances even if they're not wins i'm willing to just give a little bit more breathing room for the rest of the season if i see something you know coming together at least just good quality performances. If they go out with Olympic just doing fucking garbage, then then no, my position's not going to change. And trust me, I want to be owned because I want my team – forget everything. I want this team to be good. Damn it. I, I want them to be good. If that means me being owned, then fucking so be it. I don't give a shit. If that means telling them to go F himself and, and hiring the manager, then then do it. I don't care what the – I don't care what it is. Just I want my team to be good. I guess that kind of seeks into the next question from Patrick Dawan, friend of the show. Thanks for the question, Patrick. How long does the 4 triple 2 last? Which stress points would cause Armist to revert back to slowing down? And I mean, like, I think if it's absolute dog shit, right? Like, as we saw, like, for most of 2019, because I think if there's anything that kind of defines the Chris Armist era, it's just inconsistency week in, week out. You know, we could very well be com- this talking point about the 4 triple 2 just to be completely moot by game week three, for all we know. Because the team got shelled in the opening three games. We don't know this. You know, like, honestly, I can tell you right now. I don't actually know how long this is going to last. You know, like, and I don't know what's going to cause Armist to want to switch the tactics up again. You know, like, we could maybe lose 2-1 in the opening week. And then he goes back to 4-2-3-1. Like, who really fucking knows with this guy, right? Like, it's really hard to call anything, I think, under this regime. Yeah, it's hard to predict anything. This is such a weird year that 
between just even for Chris, it's it's a it's a new tactical setup, it's a new formation, new system, uh, uh, quite a few different players. It's a it's a different year from even last year. So I don't know. I mean, he, he it might he might even have a, a long enough leash where it's like you know maybe he gets a little bit of time to kind of get things going. Um, maybe he abandons it. I mean, you know, what was it, 2017, I think, they tried, or 2016 or 2017, they tried a four triple two a little further into the season than I thought they would um, before switching it back. But I, if I had to guess fifth or sixth game, if, if we're just getting rolled um, and there's really just not no no sign of hope, no sign of improvements, then it's probably gone. Uh, but if there's if, even if we're not doing – if not winning – there's, there's, you see some tangible benefits from you know game to game, and they're improving game to game. I could see them, you know, sacrificing some points to to, to kind of just get it going. Uh, remember, we have three strikers on the team, and it's kind of hard to platoon those three people when you have just a one striker, uh, you know, formation going. So I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna assume that they're gonna try to go as, as far as they can with that. Uh, moving on to some of the more player-related questions now. So I think uh, we'll begin with uh, Chris Ashley, regular contributor Chris Ashley, asking, EDS seems to demand a plus ball winner at CDM. Do we think CCJ can develop that skill? And I think, you know, I think we have talked about this question at depth uh, inadvertently throughout the episode. But, you know, when it comes to ball winning as a skill, I really do think that it's a product of your athletic ability along with your ability to anticipate and read the game. You know, and I think your ceiling as a ball winner is kind of set by your athleticism, but you realize that ceiling by being able to read the game and position yourself in the right positions. So the problem with it is, is that like, I think CCJ is definitely like a very good reader of the game. The potential is definitely there for him to make all the, to be in the right place at the right time to make all these kinds of interceptions and things like that. But so there's definitely potential there, but it really comes down to being able to develop some kind of explosiveness to be able to recover on top of that as well, right? And I'm not really sure if he's that kind of player. So, you know, again, like, I think the answer isn't so much hoping CCJ just turns into, like, a ball, into a midfield destroyer because he's not really that kind of player. As much as it is, like, getting a midfield destroyer to slot in next to CCJ, which may not happen now because Sean Davis is the captain, right? So I, I don't know if they're going to be sitting Sean Davis too much. Because if there's anybody who should be seeing the field on a weekly basis, it's Christian Caceres Jr. I think he's fantastic. He's a fantastic player, but I don't really see him sitting. So, yeah, I don't have much to add. That's pretty much spot on. Mm. Moving on to Neil via piano, who has the chance to have a breakout campaign? And I will toot my horn on this. I really do think a full season of Florian below is going to show everybody just how fucking good he is. You know, and I think it'd be a great story coming back from two season-ending knee injuries to separate knees, right? Just come back and prove that you can still produce it in the, at, a, at, a, at a high level in MLS. You know, I really do think it's a matter of health for him. If he stays healthy, he's going to show everyone just how good he is. So from that from a sentimental standpoint, I hope it's for him below. I've already stated my, uh, you know... I've already stated that Jared Stroud is a dark horse candidate earlier on in the episode. But I also do think that maybe you see this year, Christian Caceres Jr. takes it to a, a whole other level. You know, I really do think he has he's such a polished all-around player. And we should be considering ourselves very lucky that we get to see him develop here in New York. I just wish it wasn't under Chris Harvest. 
Yeah. I would, I mean, my initial, my initial go-to guy would be Flo. Um, yeah, it, what, it would be an absolutely unbelievable story for him to come back. And in a weird way, maybe the fact that we're not playing as balls-to-wall as we did before, maybe that's kind of better for his knees. Um, but uh, I'm actually going to go with White. White, I feel, is super underappreciated in this fan base. And unfortunately, he kind of got derailed a little bit with that, with that injury last year. I'm not saying he's a 20-plus goal uh, you know, goal scorer for a season, but I think he has a high, he has a good potential to be a very important contributor to this team in a consistent way that would give him some real recognition, uh, not just in this fan base, but in the league. Yeah. Uh, okay. Moving on to, okay, a question from the Energy Drink Soccer Show. <laughs> <laughs> Rank who gets the most minutes this year between Segrist, Tolkien, Egbo, or Reese? Um, I think Segrist will probably top the minutes chart amongst the four of it, four of them. Tolkien will probably stay at Red Bull Two most of the year and maybe get a Red Bull Two and maybe sorry can maybe get a U.S. Open Cup appearance here and there. So I think he'll probably be on the bottom between Egbo or Reese. I think Egbo will probably at least get more minutes uh he may even assert kyle duncan as the starter down the line depending on what happens but you know i think reese buckmaster is definitely like a depth option so i'd rank it segrist egbo uh buckmaster tolkien in that order i'm gonna go segrist egbo tolkien and reese um reese i think at this point is kind of like just a younger laid where you just kind of throw him wherever you need him if Reese has a lot of minutes this season, I think then we've like there's a massive failure somewhere at some point. Um, uh, Tolkien, I think, is going to be. I think he might surprise some people. I, I think by the middle of the season, he's going to may not be a regular on this team, but he's going to be in the eighteen more often than I think people think. So I'm going Seagrass, Eggwell, Tolkien, and and, um, and Reese. And moving on to another question from Enabong Ephraim. In no way is related to the Energy Dream Soccer Show. Asking us EDSS collab when? The EDSS collab is in your heart. It's al- it already exists. If you just close your eyes and you believe, just imagine it. That's the EDSS collab. Yes. Uh, if you really want to, just shoot us a DM or something. Like I don't really give a fuck anymore. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Rounding out the question, rounding out the mailbag this uh, this week comes from Patty Haddaddy, Patrick Haddad, um, asking us which player is most likely to start harassing shit libs online in support of Bernard. <laughs> and we do have a few Bernard brothers on the team, right? They've been confirmed in the past. Sean Davis is one, which I think is pretty fucking cool. Our first yeah. homegrown captain is a Bernard brother. Alex Mule is definitely like a Alex Mule. I think definitely has like a pure shit poster energy, and he definitely <laughs> seems to be on the more progressive side of things. So, you know, like it's just proof that the kids are good, right? The kids are all right, you know. Like all the homegrown players are out here, uh, you know, doing great things. So, you know, I think um, it'd probably be Alex Mule. Uh, I think if you put him back on Twitter and you allowed him to just kind of let loose, 
of all the abuse that he's getting from all these fucking nerds that don't have anything else better to do. Like, of course, he's going to be harassing all these shit libs in support of Bernard. I think that'd be fucking great. Like, the potential for content there, unbelievable. But silent, um, but silent uh, Dark Horse candidate, Sean Davis, you know? And if he does, you know, like, I will fucking die for my captain if he starts harassing <laughs> all these dorks online in support of Bernie. Hell yeah. Yeah, I, I <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's definitely gonna be those two. Um, I'm I'm convinced Muno has a has a burner account somewhere. He has to. It's, there, I just I just have too strong of a shit posting energy from him to accept that he just like he doesn't have a burner account, just fucking shit posts all day. I think view from two hundred two is Alex Mule's burner account. <laughs> you heard it here first, kid. Podcast <laughs> just him with voice changes for everybody. Actually, I am a Alex Millburner account. Actually, like uh, I'll have you know, uh, I've actually I didn't actually move to Singapore. That was just a euphemism for me disappearing into the void, so that I could never reveal my identity to you people. Uh, uh, I think that's it. Uh, I think that's the last question we have this week. So. Yeah, I mean, uh, what is it? I think the first game of the season that begins on, I think, what, January, March 1st, I think, right? In America? Yep, Sunday. This Sunday. Yep, Sunday. Sunday. One o'clock. Fun day at 1 o'clock, which means the game comes on at 2 a.m. here on a Monday morning. Yeah, uh, probably not going to be able to watch it, but, you know. <laughs> All right, so i think that kind of wraps it up for our first episode back after our hiatus uh, we'd like to thank you guys again so much for whoever's listening to this for sticking us through sticking it through this we're hoping to be posting more content soon we're hoping to get that back up and running fernando's going to be at the games a bit more often this year now the newborn's settled i think hopefully and they've got the season long pass to bring cameras and everything to the stadium. So we'll hopefully be meet, you'll hopefully be running into him at the Honda Gate uh, slightly more often this year. Uh, hopefully we'd be able to uh, get the podcast out and running every Saturday now because we have a slightly more consistent recording schedule that fits the two of us. And, uh, you know, I think uh, until then, folks, remember... Friends don't let friends be armist in. Nando, do you have anything to say to our viewers before we sign off? Yeah, what's your prediction? My prediction for the first thing. Uh, yeah, hey, I don't go surprised, like, if this turns out to be, like, an absolute fucking, like, you know, it's uh, like a, just a complete zone game, you know? Like, I think my default expectation for every game going forward now so it's going to be a zone sort of game, especially. So, uh, like, I imagine that like we'd probably concede within the opening like seven minutes to like Jurgen Lokadia or something, and then like get some kind of shit posty. Uh, what is it? Equalizer just before the half, and then we score the winner on some absolute howler. You know, like uh, I don't know, like some kind of fucked up Olympico or something, and we win two one. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think that's how it's going to go. Down. My, my prediction is actually two to one. Um, we better win. Like half of Cincinnati's team's not even going to be available um, between visa issues and suspension. So let's let's hope they don't fuck this up. But 
Yeah, I'm going to I'm going to a shit housey two to one one. I mean, like these were the exact kind of games that we dropped last year, right? So we thought the Vancouver game was in the bag. No, <laughs> no expectations at all. <laughs> yep. If if they if they can't if they can't beat this team, like I'm 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 committing suicide. Like I'm flying back to Harrison and like setting myself on fire in front of Red Bull Arena in protest. Okay, like that'd be some <laughs> fucking bullshit, right? Uh, don't quote me on that though. Because this is a non-binding agreement, but like it, it, it'd be extremely fucked up if we start the season off this way. Is why I can totally see it happening. Because you know, Chris Armis is a bin man. So in that, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know, like, like, yeah, I don't know. For old times' sake, tweet sixty-nine to Andrew Weeby. I don't give a shit anymore. Uh, and until then, friends, we'll see you on the other side. Armis out forever. God bless. Good night. And let's hope that both teams play hard. See ya. Later.